a lot of talk about compliance during the school day for students who have an IEP. So we're talking about all these things about what should a child be doing and what do they need to follow and what needs to happen and are we talking about compliance or connection and it all gets into this wrapped up emotional conversation and that's exactly why I brought Katya to the Special Education Inner Circle podcast. I'm your host Catherine Witcher and we're going to get started in this tough topic and I cannot wait to dive into this with you today. Yeah I'm super excited to chat with you too. All right. So I ask everyone, how did you end up at an IEP table? I am a speech language pathologist. Um, I've been working in the schools for two years now, so I'm relatively new to the field. But um, yeah, so I, I'm at the IEP table in, in the different school districts that I've worked in. I love that you're newer to the field. So a lot of times we're talking to people who have been in the field for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But there's something to be said, and, and I know that when we talked before this, I was like, lean into, like, you are absorbing this information through a fresh set of eyes. You are trying things in a new way. And a lot of times that's the best way for us to discover how to do something different because you're not kind of stuck in patterns that have worked for 10 years um, in that. So, so with this, you're also kind of on the up and up, like in the conversations that are relevant, that are happening right now and of concern of our, um, our parents, especially those who have younger children um, and, and they're trying to learn at the same time. So this connection versus compliance is this conversation uh, that's going on. So will you just explain a little bit about what you mean by compliance. If you're talking to somebody like, oh, I really want something else to happen, not just a child to be compliant. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think the most basic definition of compliance would be that when we ask a child to do something, they follow through with it. They don't protest. They, they do what they're told um, is kind of the basic gist of that. And I think that a lot of times, you know, it's like, if you follow through and do what the adult says, you're a good student. And if you don't follow through, then you're not a good student. And that's not always the case. Sure. Yeah. So, so let's talk about how behavior, how have you seen behavior or communication or compliance um, kind of be impacted by stress. You know, we talk about all the time, you know, behavior is communication and this is, there's a function of behaviors and, and all that. But when you and I were talking, we talked specifically about stress. Can you just share a little bit about what's going on? Yeah. Um, really diving into the underlying factors that influence behavior has been something that I've just in the past couple of years, starting my um, career, I've been really interested in because I always felt like there was more there. Um, I was um, in the ABA field for a little while and learned, you know, the functions of behavior and some of those more surface level, this is what we might see. And this is, um, in that case, what the behavior is um, functioning and as, for example, escape or access to something. Um, but I always felt like there was more and um, in listening, some great books, I've realized that stress plays such a huge role in behavior. So anytime there's what we sometimes like to call non-compliance, um, we have to look deeper. Is the child stressed for whatever reason? Did something extraneous happen during the day? Or perhaps there's more to that stress. There's internal pain going on. Um, there's things that we can't um, see right at the surface that are really important to look at. 
So you're looking at this through the lens of, you know, speech and language pathologists. You talked about, you know, you, you kind of dipped into that ABA world for, for a hot minute there of kind of figuring out what was going on. Um, what do you feel like a, a parent should do or a team should do um, in a situation where they're seeing a lot of noncompliance and like, you're like, look at stress. That's a very like, okay, but how? Like, yeah. how do you go? So somebody's like, hey, this is what's happening in the classroom. And you guys are brainstorming as a team. Like, what does that mean to like really go look at the stress? Hmm. That's a good, good question. And we also, there's, there's stress. And then there's also this big sensory piece, sensory dysregulation, which can cause stress. So there's so many, there's so many factors to look at. Um, I guess the best is, way to describe it would maybe give an example. So I had a student who was, who would get very aggressive during um, morning calendar time. He would like all of a sudden, it seemed escalate and start, you know, throwing things, um, attacking the other students even. So he really um, needed support to be, you know, removed from the classroom and calmed down um, nearly every morning. And it, it was, quick to implement, you know, some token boards, like, okay, if you stay in your seat, if you stay calm, you earn this, this thing. Um, so really looking at the surface level behavior, but I was like trying to figure out what is causing this, what seems like a very much a stress reaction. Um, and in talking with parents and really observing the child more, we realized that music really sets him off for whatever reason. Um, so when the teacher would sing the different morning calendar songs, he would get really escalated. Um, so it was just a matter of, you know, either asking him if he'd like to leave when they were singing a song or shifting some of those to be more spoken word versus sing-songy. Um, so just really looking deeper at what is causing that stress because behavior is almost always a stress reaction, especially when it's so like explosive and possibly aggressive like that. Um, it's usually, usually so much deeper than it really seems. So, and uh, I love that you looked beyond, you're like, yeah, we could, we could find compliance by this token board. Like we could fix the problem, which that's what most people would consider fixing the problem could fix the problem and, and, have them stay or we could figure out something else. So I love that you went that, that next level in that, that kind of leads to, you know, that difference between an external reinforcer or intrinsic motivation. Um, and you mentioned, uh, that to me earlier that we were talking about how external motivators tend to be overused. And I was like, oh, that's a big one to like actually say that out loud and say like we, and that's what, you know, like here's the token board, here's an external motivator to get you to comply. So um, what are you seeing as an alternative to something that might be external? Yeah. Before I move on to token boards, I just want to um, add that the book Self-Reg by Dr. Stuart Shanker really helped me to understand that behavior is almost always a stress reaction and how to really dive into identifying the pieces of stress. And um, it, it did give a lot of tangible ideas for teachers and um, staff to use. So I definitely recommend that book, Self-Reg. Um, we love a good book recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what, You saw me taking notes and I was like, yes, I wanna make sure I don't forget. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, and as far as external reinforcement, so that would be, you know, token boards, um, any kind of reward system, they definitely have their time and place. Sometimes we do have to teach really difficult skills, and that does help encourage our students to work hard at something that might be difficult. Um, but I just feel that they are often so overused, especially in this um, managing behaviors realm, um, especially when we consider that most of behaviors are either stress or sensory based. Um, so again, I just encourage to look deeper and try to look at what could help intrinsic motivation um, instead of going straight to the external reinforcements, because that's what we all want, right? We want our students to be intrinsically motivated. We want them to, you know, at their core, want to do well and want to um, complete tasks and, and learn. Um, so, yeah. Um, so how have you kind of implemented that? So if you have a, uh, you know, you have a child and you're like, but that's all we use is all this external. And I will tell you, I have seen the parents at home who are exhausted with all the token boards with all the reinforcers. And then a child always needs, like they're reliant on, if I don't tangibly see something that I'm going to get out of this, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. So what might be something that a student that you worked with that you figured out like, oh, like we don't need a token board. We could just do what? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of token boards or external reinforcements are used when we're trying to get a student to complete a task, right, that they might not really be enjoying. Um, so, you know, first we want to go back to that stress piece and make sure that there's nothing that that happens that's standing out in their day that might just be causing them to not want to comply um, because they have had a extraneous bad day. Um, but Besides that, there's really tangible things that we can try to incorporate before we jump to the token board. So the biggest overlying thing is incorporating interests. Um, and I know that can be difficult for teachers who have 10 to 30 kids in their classroom to you know, make every task interest focused. Um, but so one thing that I like to recommend instead is trying to make the picture supports um, interest focused instead. So, for example, if you have a student and you want him to be practicing accounting activity and he doesn't want to do it, but he's really interested in Mickey Mouse characters, um, I might say, OK, make the counting related to Mickey Mouse. Maybe he counts the Mickey Mouse figurines or something like that, um, but teachers might say it's I can't make every single activity um, interest based for every single child it would take so much time and energy um, so in those cases when we can't that's understandable um, so instead we can make the picture supports Mickey Mouse theme so perhaps his um, visual instructions for the task are Mickey Mouse themed or his visual schedule for the day um, is Mickey Mouse themed, um, different things like that, that's, that can still increase um, interest in the task. Um, so incorporating interest is huge. Um, I love that. And that just makes it fun. Like we all know we've built those visual schedules, you know, that are same old, same old. And you know what? I, I could absolutely see, I'm thinking back to, you know, a long time ago when I had a student, I'm like, they would take more ownership over something if it was personalized to them. And, and, you know, we, that's just a normal human interaction of like, this is mine. This was made for me. 
and, and it just makes it feel a bit more special and a connection of like, no, like I'm in charge of this piece uh, and, and have feeling some control over that and some ownership. I know it can be so beneficial um, throughout that school day. Yeah. So, um, so do you have a, okay. So I have to ask, like, I don't know, do you have a book or something on this that you, or are we moving on to, to, yeah, see, I knew it. I just, I'm like, mm, I bet you that you have a reference for this too. <laughs> if you're looking at why external or, um, external motivation is not always, or extrinsic motivation is not always what we want to jump to. Um, the book punished by rewards by Alfie Cohen is a great book. It kind of really dives into the research of how, when we focus so much on um, token boards and that extrinsic motivation, it actually can decrease intrinsic motivation. So we're we're often creating students who are really reliant on that external motivation. Um, and that can actually be kind of harmful in the long run. Um, I love it. I just wrote it down. I'm gonna put it in my library. Um, besides yeah. incorporating interests, we we can also make the task more structured because so often students just don't know what is expected of them. So it makes it hard to initiate the task. So having clear instructions and a clear finished so they know I have to do this, this and this and then I'm done can make the task less daunting and um, often that can really just fix the the problem right there and it's really so simple but that that's me too I got three things that I have to put on the top of my list every day and I'm like this 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 done <laughs> and then and then I can do some other work but I got to get these three things done first uh, you know again like this it's interesting to me that uh you know as we look into all these strategies that work for students and I'm like if we really think about it we're using so many of these strategies naturally as adults like these are lifelong skills this this isn't just about, you know, like, let's learn the next math skill, or let's learn some more sight words, or let's learn how to, you know, uh, you know, get through gym class. It's, it's really about this life skill of being able to plan and prioritize what needs to get done. Um, it, it is, it, it's just a, it's a bigger picture. So for everybody who's listening, you know, just think about what are the things that you do to motivate yourself? And it's, you know, it, you can definitely apply that into a child's school day. So let's talk about, I know, um, I think one of the ways that we found you was Instagram and you were talking about, uh, let's see if I say it right. So gestalt language processing in there and, you know, there's epilalia and is this meaningful and what's going on? And, and I was like, yes, let's have this conversation because this is something that we haven't talked about um, on the podcast. So ex explain that, jump into it. Yeah. Yeah, this is my favorite topic to talk about. And um, though the research in this is not new by any means, it's become really um, a kind of a new topic in the speech language pathology world. Um, unfortunately, it kind of lost its ground for a few, um, quite a few years. And now it's rising again. And I'm thanks to people on social media sharing their knowledge about it. And I'm so glad because it really is um, so life-changing for a lot of our autistic students. Um, so Gestalt language processing, um, I'll try to just explain the basics quickly, um, but Gestalt language processing is the is what students who use delayed echolalia do. So there's two ways to process language analytically, which is what most of us think of as language um, development. So single words and then 
two word phrases and then three word phrases and then we're speaking sentences but gestalt processing is um, another way to develop language that is actually very common um, we just a lot of us don't um, aren't educated about it and it's kind of the, the opposite these students start with longer gestalts or scripts is um, what a lot of um, people call them so these longer phrases that are often echoed from TV shows or media. Um, and then eventually they break those down into single words and then and only then can they produce truly spontaneous novel speech. So it really is a process. Um, but for so long, um, echolalia has been treated as meaningless and ignored. Um, or we try to stop it. So that was, and, and I'll totally admit, so 25 years-ish ago, when I was in the, you know, had my first classrooms, it was, you know, I can absolutely, Blue's Clues was the show. And, and <laughs> you know, we would have its mail time and we'd have the whole repetition of, you know, mom had that VHS tape for my student, right? That was there. And it, like, he just watched the same sections over and over. He'd come in and repeat it. And the, the go-to was to stop that. It was, yeah. how are we going to stop this? Um, I will tell you, I, I mean, and I'm not saying like, well, I didn't do that. Yeah, like we were trying to shape it. In my classroom, I was kind of like, well, and maybe it's because I'm a special needs sibling. So I grew up with a lot of different, uh, you know, um, just a lot of different people and the way that they spoke and my brother's friends and all of that. Like, it, it wasn't quite one of those things where I was like, we need to fix it, but I did feel like we needed to shape it. And when I'm, you know, learning this piece of it now, I'm like, oh, we probably could have shaped that differently mm -hmm. um, in a way that still allowed more of the language uh, to develop, you know, when you know better, you do better. And this, this was not talked about in that way. So I think that that's, you know, that's just amazing to hear that. So I love that. So what else do you want to tell us about like the, like the echolalia for, you know, and that it's meaningful. Do you have some ways that, that maybe we could address that in the classroom? Because the other side of it is saying like, well, well, but we can't have the child walking around repeating the whole YouTube video, you know, all day long either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the biggest thing is, acknowledging that that um, delayed echolalia of those longer scripts are, it is part of that, of their language learning process. So it's definitely not something that we want to um, diminish because that really is how they learn language. Um, so to support that, we want to really, it really depends what kind of stage of language development the student's in. If it's, um, if it's a student who really only produces those long scripts, that is how they're communicating. And oftentimes those long scripts have an underlying meaning that we just aren't aware of. Um, for example, one of my students um, produces a script or gestalt from the Backyardigans, I think, which is a cartoon that he likes. And it's, is everyone all right? And he uses that to express when he's hurt. So if we don't, um, look at that kind of underlying meaning and try to figure out what they're really trying to say when they're producing these, we might really miss some important communication. So um, it's important to try to do some of that detective work in figuring out what they are really trying to say. Um, but even if that's not done, just acknowledging that you hear them and they, their words have meaning, even if it seems totally irrelevant to you. Um, just repeating it back to them or saying, yeah, I hear you, it's, it's going to be huge because um, 
the, the biggest thing is that we don't want to diminish that. Um, but yeah, I just want to say every parent who kind of feels like this is how my child's communicating and I wish they could tell me more, like follow that parent instinct of maybe they are telling you more and, and they're using those words and work with the team. And, you know, maybe if you're a parent, um, you're working with a team that hasn't heard this information before that <laughs> just wants to shape the communication um, like so it's not disruptive yeah. or shape the communication so it it feels more mainstream um, and, and they're not digging deeper. And it could honestly be just because they, they don't know. They, they don't know what that is. So I'm gonna make sure that in the show notes, we have the links to the books that you mentioned. Is there, are there any other resources that you think that we should read? Do you have anything else on your list? <laughs> I mean, as far as Gestalt processing goes, there's a ton of stuff, but anything by Marge Blanc is great. She really kind of um, laid out the process, the natural language acquisition process that these students go through. So kind of the step-by-step -step of breaking down those gestalts and turning them into more functional language. So anything by Marge Blanc and then um, Alexandria, um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Alexandria Zachos or Zakos. Um, but she has the Meaningful Speech um, course and account on Instagram. And so she has a great parent course um, and a great really tangible like step-by-step -step intro to um, delayed echolalia gestalt processing course for um, professionals as well. So um, I really recommend that as a, a great starting place to learning more, but yeah. You are a wealth of knowledge. And that's what I love. I love that you're just like absorbing all of these things again, like we said like that, that maybe we haven't addressed for years or we haven't looked at it because, you know, we've been in the field a super long time. And I'm like, this is exciting. Like I've got books here, you know, and resources written down that I didn't even know existed. So I appreciate you bringing those to, to me and to everybody who is listening. I'm going to make sure again, that, that we'll put the links in the show notes, everyone of how you can get connected to Katya, how you can find these resources in there. Bottom line is that, um, you know, we're not just about compliance anymore. That That's really what I hope everybody takes away is that it's not just about follow the directions and be a good student. And it might take some work with some of our you know fellow IEP team members to get on the same page that it's not just about compliance, but it is possible. So again, thank you for being here today and sharing everything. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.